Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Supply Chain Talk. My name is Alastair Charrington, and I'm the host for the first of the new series of Supply Chain Talk and delighted to be here. And I know we have some guests from the US and I'm sure viewers from all around the world. So good morning to you. Um, and just a quick um, reminder of the format of the uh, session. Um, first of all, we'll be looking at a topical news article on supply chain. And we'll be discussing that um, with my, my first guest and then as a panel. And then we'll turn to the subject of today's um, main subject of mapping your multi-tier global supply chain. <clears throat> as a reminder, if you have any questions um, or comments, uh, do put them into the uh, chat box on, on your screens. Um, and we'll try and address most of those. But um, if the discussion's flowing, we'll, we'll, we'll leave them to a little bit later. And uh, as in the previous series, um, we will be awarding a supply chain talk mug to um, the best um, the best contributor of the day, and uh, and and as a as a as a indicator of how rare these are as items, I haven't even been sent one yet. So um, these are treasured possessions if you get given one. So um, uh, my first guest um, today is Francesco Lucetta of Pentair, who, who I think will be joining us. Welcome, Francesca, Francesco, and um, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Good afternoon, Alistair. It's a pleasure being here, being uh, one of the first, uh, uh, you know, uh, guests of this supply chain talk after uh, giving it the new shape that you were speaking about. Uh, I'm Francesco Lucchetta. I'm Italian by origin, based in Switzerland since the last 10 years and working for Pentair. Uh, Pentair is a company that deals mainly with water and water applications, but of course has also other businesses. I'm group sourcing leader in uh, my latest role uh, for the business unit uh, uh, Sustainable uh, Gas Solutions. And uh, a pleasure being here in this moment of time and uh, speaking about a topic that is very much on, uh, very much part of the agenda of uh, all the people dealing with procurement and supply chain. Thank you, Francesco. So um, you've chosen an article on Bed Bath & Beyond. Would you, would you like to explain uh, why, why you've selected that and, and its relevance? I uh, wanted to start from there because, uh, you know, B2C um, businesses are basically uh, very much affected by several different uh, multi-tier uh, layers in the, in the, of, of different supply chain suppliers and the vendors and whatever. So uh, we may want to look at what they are currently setting up uh, in order to, um, to to tackle the topic of how to make sure that we correctly map our supply chains in order to be successful uh, in a uh, very strange period of time. I guess that uh, market conditions like the ones that we are currently experiencing were just not predictable just two years ago. But even last year when we started experiencing crisis on materials, and in, uh, in, in prices ramping up, we did not have anyway the possibility to predict how deep this could have been uh, going over the time. Uh, actually, uh, it is interesting to see how those retail organizations are currently uh, chasing their supply chain. There is, uh, I would say, a part of internal countermeasures that they are currently setting up, which could be very common with many different industries. Uh, like, uh, of course, working on reorder points, work, making sure that the materials are available on time in order to uh, to, 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 to create uh, marketable conditions for them and to, and to have profitable sales. Uh, but in the same time, they have to keep uh, an eye over obsolescence and, uh, and uh, not to, to, I would say, uh, over-invest uh, 
in uh, their working capital on huge stocks. And they have, uh, number three, I would say, also uh, huge problems when it comes to manage uh, the uh, exceeds and the obsolescence of their items because the items could, could easily go out of market very soon. Uh, so in, in the complexity of their environment, I think that they tackle basically the three main points that we have uh, from a multi-tier perspective, uh, from a multi-tier mapping perspective, sorry. Yeah, and certainly... Yeah. It's certainly interesting that, that, that they're, they're talking about the dual problems with their inventory of, on the one hand, of availability being a problem, and on the other hand, having huge excess stocks, which they're, they're looking to, to work through and have to sell through, you know, through discount or, or other channels. Right. I think it's very common in this moment of time in several industries finding uh, uh, enterprises and organizations which were uh, over-ordering in order to prevent... Uh, uh, disruption risks. And uh, in this moment of time, uh, actually, the evaluation is keeping the stock uh, at the current level, or of course, depleting the stock through sales and, and, and whatever, in order to make sure that they optimize again on the, on the working capital side. And uh, it's a kind of dilemma because we don't have a very specific reply in this moment. I bring uh, on the table maybe the topic of the energy crunch. Uh, which we could be expected to experience as of this uh, fall season, let's say. Uh, this remains as a huge question mark in this moment. Uh, we don't know what the impact could be. Uh, it's a multi-tier uh, issue because uh, actually all of us have suppliers of finished goods, semi-finished goods and raw materials, but whatever supplier is potentially affected by this energy shortage, and how could this uh, turn uh, to be a risk or an issue, we actually don't really know. And uh, it's very difficult also to map what the strategies are from the companies because uh, it comes back also to the priority that they have into the energy supply market by uh, a country perspective, by local legislations and uh, local rules. So we really have to be effective in chasing anyway uh, uh, what the strategies of our suppliers are in order to prevent this to happen. Are they setting up a a sufficient safety stock in order to uh, supply us even in, in the worst case scenario, which is uh, energy cut off 100%, or uh, can uh, they absorb a portion of this, uh, I would say, stock that we need in order to continue for us? All of this enters into the consideration of the MRP that we need to run and the, uh, the strategy that we have also to apply to our multi-source and multi-tier uh, supply chain, I guess. Absolutely, and I think you know we've we've seen that so much over the past kind of year or two with with COVID and and more sort of minor short term disruptions, but still major with the with the Suez Canal, with ports getting blocked up and and, and shipping problems, and of course now the Ukraine war. So we've seen so many massive supply chain disruptions. That I think it has changed the whole principle of just in time and really lean stock levels to saying, well, how much stock do you need to have? In country, in your market, so that you're you know, resistant to uh, to any supply chain shocks. So, so do you think that do you think the systems are, are the key heart of that, or is it is it things like physical warehousing that have got to help companies like Bed Bath and Beyond cope with that? <laughs> I wonder if many solutions could have different options in this. Uh, it, it would be difficult to say. For the moment, is the safest uh, asset we can. Uh, uh, we can set up, especially in industries that could be hardly impacted, like uh, casting industries, metal industries, those that are more energy consuming during the production process. Mm. Uh, 
there is no other way in this moment to grant uh, the material continuity rather than having the material. So uh, we came back probably to what 20 uh, years ago was the landscape at the beginning of the 20s when we had the two crises in 2000 and 2004. And the, having the material on stock made a difference both on an availability point of view and on a pricing point of view. So being competitive meant having material on stock because you were buying this at better conditions than the ones that were on the market. Absolutely. So perhaps now is a good time to, to bring in my other guests, um, uh, which are Haley Gauntlet of QBL Consulting, Chris Shanahan of Thermo Fisher Scientific, and Julie Gerdeman of Everstream Analytics. So perhaps if the three of you would like to join, um, and and perhaps Haley, if we if we can turn to you, I, I don't know what your well, first of all if you'd like to introduce yourself and, and and what what are your sort of what what's your particular take on the Bed Bath and Beyond story? Um, so uh, my name is Haley Gauntlet, as uh, as you mentioned, Alistair. It's nice to be here today. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm a consultant working with businesses, uh, both large and small, um, working predominantly within the human rights aspect of uh, of consulting. So I'm a modern slavery and human rights uh, expert consultant, um, very much uh, involved in our main our main topic um, today. Um, uh, my take on the on the the uh, bed bath and beyond, uh, you know, disappointing. I think obviously there are lots of challenges um, that businesses are facing. Um, you know, from a human rights perspective, for me, I'm always keen that you know people don't you lose their jobs, and you know that um, any efficiencies that are made are actually uh, a benefit to 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 workers um, and to to humans in our supply chain. Um, so, from my perspective, it's a it's a kind of a bit of a sad story. I think you know, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be joyful about the the situation. And I but you know, obviously businesses go through these phases where they do have to to um, manage these challenges. Um, but I think, you know, one of the ways that you can do that is by uh, rather than sort of like shedding people is actually improving human rights within within a business um, so that you become uh, somebody that people want to shop with. Um, somebody that people are invested in, somebody whose customers are loyal because they understand that the workers and, and the people in the supply chain are being treated very well. So th that's my perspective. Like I said, <laughs> probably. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. One, but... No, no, absolutely. No. Thank you, Haley. And 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 it, but you bring up a very interesting point because it's it's kind of somewhat strange that Bed Bath and Beyond are busy saying we're going to have to shed a whole lot of employees at corporate and supply chain levels before they've even started on the program so kind of will they get that much cooperation from those supply chain management uh, staff if um if, if a yeah. successful program means a lot of people are going so perhaps chris if i can turn to you um if you if you like, like to again briefly introduce yourself and I, i'm sure you've had a lot of experience of supply chain transformation programs would would you be announcing in advance that that we want a lot of people to go as part of this program or would you introduce that message perhaps later on in the program Uh, we've got a problem, Chris, that your microphone is showing us on, but we can't actually hear you. Um, so um, I don't know if our supply chain elf can um, can do clever things remotely, but if you don't mind, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to Julie, who's muted and off camera. Ju Julie, are, are you there? I hope. Um, and uh, we can, perhaps Julie, you'd like to introduce yourself and, and perhaps comment on, on the article as well. 
Yes, hi. Hi, everyone. This is Julie Gerdeman. I'm the CEO of EverStream Analytics. And at EverStream, we help companies mitigate risk in their supply chains. We do this by providing risk analytics, um, actionable insights to help them really avoid disruptions, um, manage them in any way possible. Um, and we do this through a combination of artificial intelligence and human intelligence. So it's big data, algorithms looking for patterns, um, but also combining it with data scientists and analysts all around the world. Um, so, you know, when I when I looked at the Bed Bath & Beyond article, to me, what, what struck me was agility and the need for agility, right? It's, you know, Alistair, you mentioned just in time versus just in case and sort of the balance and dance between that. Um, Francesco, uh, Francesco talked about supply assurance, right? Having the supply, but it really comes down to having the right supply at the right time um, that, that ultimately can help impact the consumer. So Haley talked about sort of the disappointment in the consumer, the disappointment in the, in the employees. But to me, as you look, it's all about agility, but you can't have agility without visibility. And that ties back to our topic, right? Visibility into the supply chain. That's, that's what actually enables um, the agility to happen. So, you know, in the third quarter of last year, Bed Bath & Beyond announced that they left $100 million of revenue on the table due to late deliveries. And so if they had that visibility and they had the agility and the foresight through the planning process and aligning the planning, you know, the supply and the demand, um, they, they wouldn't have left that, that revenue on the table. And, you know, ha get, having that revenue then would have ultimately, uh, hopefully prevented them from laying off the employees, uh, you know, as we're talking about right now. So that, that's my Thank you, Julie. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it just brings home the, you know, the importance of supply chain and the basics of delivering in a timely way and just how that can, can hit revenue in, in, in very significantly. Chris, I gather we're back with you now on, on mic. So um, if you'd like to join in and, and introduce yourself briefly and, and, and perhaps comment on that change management process that they, they seem to be embarking on at Bed Bath & Beyond. Sure, yeah. Chris Shanahan. So um, with Thermal Fisher Scientific, Based here in Boston, so um, morning, afternoon, everyone. Um, well, I'm going to build on the theme that Julie sort of shared here around agility, and you think about supply chain and, and sort of demand, demand to supply management. And I think, you know, what happened with Bed Bath and Beyond laying off people is never good, right? So that that's sort of a, a choice a company has made. You know, would you, depending on what sort of driving that, you know, because you need to get in behind the. Uh, what's driving that from, from a operation, operating point of view. But if you think about what's happened over the last 24, 36 months with the pandemic, COVID, um, you know, you mentioned the Suez Canal. Uh, if you think about supply chains generally out of, out of Asia, shutting down um, and availability. So companies have been building inventory. So if you go to any balance sheet in most companies, their inventory is uh, at a levels that are um, not normal. Um, and part of that for me is driven by sort of not knowing in this case what the consumer wants, right? So you're, you're trying to you're trying to make some assumptions here, uh, and we you know I think we're all experienced this getting the right mix uh, as it relates to uh, as it relates to demand, which really drives the, the total end to end supply chain. Uh, and then it's also being I think you know, I think there's other uh, different sort of angle to it where where we would come from within the company. And if you think about part of the one of our categories that we we we're spending a lot of time is really around electronics and electronic components. Um, and you know, if you think about the 
the sustainability agenda and the environmental agenda, which links to uh, EV and, and the whole electronic space, which is really sort of also sort of constraining our ability to think about um, getting the right demand and getting supply, which then gets into what I call the tier end sort of uh, drive, right? So really understand your end-to-end -end supply chain, which goes down to suppliers that you probably wouldn't have thought or looked for in, in historically, right? So you're going down to a tier four, tier tier five level. And that's one of the bigger challenges I think we face in supply chain going forward and how to manage that. Absolutely. Um, and I think... I think I get the sense it'll be nice to discuss the article more, but I get the sense that you're all chomping at the bit to get talking about mapping um, multi-tier supply chains. So, so let's move on to that now. Um, perhaps back to Francesco. So, so Francesco, you were mentioning earlier about the the challenge of um, uh, of of the pain point that uh, that the energy pricing and and indeed potential energy shortages are going to be causing to to suppliers. So, so I think you, you, would would you like to comment about about how that affects you know the the need to map not just tier one suppliers but but beyond? Um, I even reply taking a step back and looking at what happened basically in two thousand twenty one when the uh, electronic shortage, especially on semiconductors, uh, uh, was hitting the world market, and everyone was trying to adapt also. Uh, their own supply base and uh, their own demands to, to what was available in the market, right? So uh, at the moment of time, I perfectly remember that the big question mark was how long this will continue. And the timing effect needs to be considered also in this specific case, because uh, at the moment of time, we, we, we came to know that, that the world situation was generated by a hard stop of uh, all the main production lines of semiconductors. And then... Uh, also, the solution was potentially linked to uh, how long they would have been uh, taking to ramp them up again according to the expectations of the market. Uh, so when it comes to your question, actually, uh, the, the point is, into the timing effect, we need to consider what could actually impact our suppliers into their continuity. Uh, essentially, this uh, comes down to two things, I would say. The first one is the complexity of their own supply chain and the materials that they need to provide. Uh, we can we have to be uh, very much realistic and uh, in, in pragmatic over the objectives that we need to achieve. Do we want an alternative for a finished good? Do we want an alternative for a raw material? What do we have of qualified that we could action over the short term? And the second point is how much of this will be linked to a market timing which is predictable uh, in this moment of time. So. Uh, last year, again, we were uh, we were coming to know at some point of time that the shortage on electronics and uh, semiconductors could have been lasting something like 12 to 18 months. We now are on the uh, on the hard learning uh, in the market side that this is not completely over anyway, and so probably will last uh, over. Uh, I would say a, a longer time, and in this case, what alternatives are available? And in this case, you need to map, of course, this according to not just uh, the tier one, tier two, and tier three of your suppliers, uh, but also considering the how much strategic is this supplier for you. Mapping uh, multi-tier supply chains is a huge effort. Probably is the hugest effort that supply chains were going through uh, in the last years. So we need to do that for what is really strategic to the market. I would say. 
Absolutely. Chris, if I can turn to you, Hayley, I'd love you to, to in a minute, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the, 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 the issues that are closer to your heart. But, but Chris, I'm interested for, for, for your business, which obviously, again, very technical manufacturing. So I suspect you've got hugely extended supply chains. And, and have you seen some of those issues as well and, and the challenges of, of, of mapping uh, multi-tier? Yeah, no, I, th I think we all experience the same things, right? So, so I think if I reflect on some of the experiences over the last twelve months, you know, we, you know, when I say electronics, or you know, we we produce um, a lot of single-use devices for vaccines, um, the, the the demand profile it has clearly shifted um, in there. We were experiencing that, um, and. Our dependency, I think many companies depend on a lot of a lot of CMs to sort of manage part of the uh, of the actual um, supply chain for you. Their, their, uh, their understanding of their supply base and the depth around that is has been challenging. Okay, so 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 we're you know when we think about how we manage supply. You know, we are talking to the semiconductor leaders. I think most companies are. We're all trying to get access to semiconductors, the semiconductor leaders, or or, or just passive components. Um, so, so we have to rethink our relationships and how we manage our relationships across that supply chain as well. Um, and when you think about multi-tier mapping and, and sort of that, the, the, the sort of getting into what we call the tier N play. It's not only about supply, but there's other expectations coming out, right? So what you know, our customers are asking is, well, what's your carbon emission footprint linked to a product? Okay, so so to get to that level of detail, uh, we don't have that today, right? So that's something we have to go get sorted out as we go forward. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. So, so Haley, I think that leads into you. I mean, certainly on on emissions is just one example, but of course it's part of the whole wider ESG agenda. So. What are the, yeah. what are the what are the methods? What are the options to to try and map that sort of data? Well, to be honest, and I'm, I'm hoping uh, Julie's going to be talking about this um, specifically in a minute. Um, but when I'm working with my clients, um, you know, I'm, I'm you know, like I said, quite a few big clients, uh, big FTSE 100 companies. Um, we're we're really looking at and and to be to be fair, the the mapping to date hasn't been particularly good. But I do think what we've seen in recent years is the ability to map um, so much better with the new technology and new systems that are coming out. And it's certainly one of the conversations that I have with any of my clients. Um, ESG data is becoming so much more important. Our, our customers of the future, if you think about um, Gen Zs and you see all the research that's coming out about Gen Zs, then um, a business, an, an organization having a purpose, having good human rights, having good um, environmental policies, having, you know, this whole ESG um, focus is so important for any business that wants to survive in the future. So having uh, the ability to map your supply chain around this data is so, so important. Um, and, you know, I, I openly talk to my customers about the fact that they should be investing in the technology that allows them to do this um and you know it's certainly i, I think in fact i feel Ju julie's going to be much more um able to talk about that especially from the technology side i am certainly not a technologist um but i know that you know we're seeing so much change in the industry um 
And, and people aren't really very far, far forward with this journey in the mapping, even though, I mean, ever since I started my career in this, we've been talking about mapping supply chains. But still, have people got fully mapped supply chains? No. Even the ones that have good um, uh, sort of like traceability down to source materials, they don't necessarily have that mapped properly. They may know who supplies their raw materials, so who supplies the steel, for example, if it's in the renewable sector, but they don't have any visual way or 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 um, any form of, sort of like map where they can actually, um, well, visualize it to actually in, it's, uh, interrogate it. And so that's what's really important now is actually having that so that you can say without a doubt, yes, I know that's coming through that tier. Uh, I know exactly where that product is coming from. I know the story behind that product and I'm comfortable with the environmental, social and governance within that uh, in, in, within that product or that industry. Um, certain industries, like I say, the renewable sector, they have very good data around source materials but it's not mapped properly um so they really need a way of mapping it um, okay so yeah i, I think julie's probably the perfect time to it, it does sound like the, the perfect uh, to introduction to julie again and julie talk about visualizing we can't see you i don't know if your camera's on but uh, oh okay um uh, I, I can see julie by the way um, oh, I can't. Okay, don't worry then. Hopefully, the audience can. For some strange reason, I can't. But Julie, okay. that's fine. But 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 please do 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 um to comment on 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 how can we get better visualization and mapping of of the data if 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 companies have got it. Uh, absolutely. Um. And and the, the, oh, good. Okay, she can. They can see me. I just saw a note. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> so we come, We just covered a bunch of different topics that do all lead to sort of how do we visualize it and how do we make it real. Um, the first ESG, like Chris talked about the E, right? The, the carbon emissions, the scope three, you know, scope three represents 80%, you know, uh, if you look at that uh, of, uh, of emissions, that's the environmental. Um, and then we just talked about, we were talking about social um, and the, the regulations now, the Supply Chain Act in Germany and the UK, the Uyghur Act in the US, right? Regulation at a minimum is driving us there to identify who is in my supply chain? You know, are there bad actors in my supply chain that I need to address? Um, and, and then, of course, the compliance and governance aspect. Um, so all of these things, it's through your entire supply chain. And and this is it is a big Francesco said it best. This is a big challenge, um, but it requires big data. And then it requires the right technology on top of the data. So it requires really the artificial intelligence. That's really how you scale and identify who is in my supply chain. So um, it's what, what we do and, and the technology allows for billions of trading transactions and running algorithms over that, over the billions of transactions and contextualizing it, okay? Once you contextualize it, we use something called entity resolution. And the entity resolution gets down to a facility level, to the material level you know, to a component level. We we're talking about semiconductors a few minutes ago, right? The actual component. So identification of at that level through entity resolution and then to visualize it, we use something called graph technology. And that graph technology then allows us to then put it into a view, um, into a, like a user experience that people can view and see and, and act upon. But one of the things, you know, Haley mentioned, you know, mapping it. It's one thing to map a supply chain, right? And this is what we're doing very actively with, with our customers today, but it's another to actually do something about it. Meaning 
having alerts and knowing the risks in real time or, or predictively proactively looking through a windshield versus the rearview mirror, we like to say, that's really when it becomes meaningful because there's a map, but then knowing what do I need to know in my supply chain, when I need to know it, when it matters, having those risks, you know, front and center so that you can action them and make better, faster decisions. That's really what it's all about and what the technology enables uh, companies to do. Thank you, Judy. Great. We've got an interesting question from Benjamin Davis. So, so, so thanks, Benjamin, for, for, for your question here, which is you know, how important is sustainable consumption for shoppers, for consumers? Are they actually starting to make more decisions on what they buy and who they buy it from based on the information that they're told there? Um, so perhaps, Francesco, maybe we can go head back to you on this one. Do, do, do you, I mean, I know you're in a, in a, in a B2B world, but, but are you seeing increased interest in, in the credentials of you know, your own organization and, and other organizations when people are choosing where to buy from? I'm working for a company that deals with potable water in the produces filters and systems to, 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 to generate potable water. Potable water is something that improves the lives of people. So Clearly, you need to, to set up a, an ESG and a sustainability policy, which ties very much with the mission in the purpose of your company. Otherwise, uh, you are just getting completely in, uh, giving a, sorry, you're just giving a completely inconsistent message with what your company uh, does. So uh, out of this example, I can tell you, it probably depends by the industry you are currently dealing with. If you are if you are very much exposed to uh, to the consumer with your goods, or if you are if your mission if your company mission is very much exposed and sensitive to uh, to this, of course you drive much better attention on it. However, we have also to be uh, to be fair and to give credit to uh, to the professors we currently have speaking about you know business and society and try to uh, to take a more ethic approach to the business and they say that at the end this is generating a huge difference especially on new generations uh, because um, it's not like for me for example uh, with my years of experience and whatever I was trained uh, to to get over this view but new generations uh, embed them under the skin since day one so uh, they get out of the business they even choose the company according to ethic values sometimes so you really need to have this and to take care of this, not only for your customers, as per uh, Benjamin question, but probably also to, to make sure that you can continue hiring the talents that could make the difference. Thanks, Francesco. I guess, Hayley, perhaps back to you. I mean, when we're talking about the difficulty of, of sort of measuring some of these things, I mean, I, I guess sort of sounds like consumers want to see this sort of stuff and it does influence people more and more. But even something as simple as, kind of emissions or kind of, you know, other ESG um, factors, kind of it's in your work, how, how do you advise companies to measure it, that, you know, multi-tiered? That, that's the challenge, isn't it? In terms of the, in terms of this, can I just come back to, a little, sorry, I'll, I'll come to that question in a second. That's fine. In terms of sort of like um, Benjamin's question, I just think, um, you know, the businesses that I work in, a lot of them are customer facing. So I've worked in a lot of the big retailers, uh, big global retailers. Um, and, uh, you know, 
I know that, you know, this has been on their agenda for many, many years, because as Francesco said, that they have been in this sensitive space where customers are acquiring things, NGOs are acquiring things of them, uh, governments are requiring things of them. So, so these guys have already been there and doing this for quite some time. Um, and what they actively do is they actively, they are always actively seeking customer feedback about what customers want and customers Certainly for the big retailers, um, uh, customers want these ESG measures. They are um, they are constantly uh, changing and evolving. Um, and I've been doing this for over 20 years now. Um, and basically, when I first started doing this, um, so sort of like um, ESG was a push. You had to push this onto people. We are in a very, very different scenario now where we have a lot more pull from people. Our customers want to know this stuff. We we do things like, you know, we have barcodes that take the customer right back to the very facility where the product was made so that the customer, because they're curious, because they write to us and they tell us they want to know this stuff. They tell us that they're interested in it. So we already know that there is a big focus on it. And, and like I said, you know, all the research around um, Gen Zs show that their social purpose is such a huge driver for them that they will be stopping buying and boycotting um, more people as we go along for not meeting those ESG targets. So I really think that they're absolutely our consumers are the people driving this forward. Um, I came across some really interesting stats the other day, um, which really quite shocked me. In the Gen Zs area, seven out of seven out of ten of um, Gen Z's are involved in some sort of social or political movement, mostly through social media. But that's a huge compared to sort of like the previous baby boomers and Gen, Gen X's and whatever. That's a huge change. And what's facilitated that change is obviously the technology around social media. Um, so so that's kind of like um, my take on it and I do think so like to answer Ben's question um Benjamin's question sorry um then then yes you know people are changing because customers want this uh, and you know it's a it's a pull now not not a push thanks Hayley Chris I know that um beforehand when we were discussing the, the subject a little bit that you you were mentioning that sometimes there, there may be a clash between a, a sort of um between local expectations which I guess might be the local market and corporate expectations and so so how do you see that do you, do you see those are normally aligned because we just all want to re record and report the same types of measures whether it's in a corporate report or you know in a way that consumers can see it or or, or do you see there's a there's a conflict between those two audiences i don't think there's a conflict i think it's just about for me it's around timing okay it's our ability to get to the level of detail that we all want to know today, right? So if I pick up on, on Haley's, one of Haley's thing comments, and, and we're seeing this for some of our customers where, you know, whether they want, I'll use, I'll use the carbon piece, where it could be water waste or, or it could be anything to do with human rights as well. They want to know, you know, what's the carbon emission linked to that product, okay? Or to that skew, down to the skew level. Um, and that's going to take time. I think what we are what we are identifying is a need now in the market. I think is a need that's not going to go away. Um, it's just about time before most companies can actually get to that level of detail. Um, and it also comes back to complexity. When I reflect on the company here, 
you know, we got 200 manufacturing locations around our network. We got 184 ERP instances, um, and you know, everybody is using it in a in a different way. And and the data the data governance, and we're going to come back to the master data and 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 the sort of the governance around data to make sure, you know. So so if you think about what Julie is explaining to to get what Julie needs, we need to have good good data, right? So. So it's really about getting your framework set up to enable us to get to what the eventually the consumer is going to look for. Okay. I, I think it's a reality um, of it. Um, you know, decisions around how we select supply and tomorrow, and tomorrow could be you know tomorrow could be tomorrow. It could be one, two, three years out. You know, we're going to select supply based on the ability of supply to give us what we need to meet the consumer. Okay, and, and that's going to that's sort of a shift that's going on in the marketplace. I think generally, I think retail is, is sort of earlier. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. We've got an interesting question um, from, um, I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Mamadi, so apologies if I've pronounced it wrong, which is sort of talking about, you know, the, given the complexities we've seen of, 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 of mapping supply chains, you know, where should you be mapping it and, and just how expensive is it to do that? So uh, maybe Julie, as a, as a Bit of a solution provider in this field. I mean, you know, are there ways to make this a manageable cost, or or is it do we just have to accept it is a, a significant cost? And if people want a lot of information, that will cost businesses to to measure and and, and communicate that information. So I, I think that's actually an ideal question because when we work with customers, it's a journey, and they determine you know what to prioritize based on their needs. So we were talking about an example where customer experience, right? So perhaps they prioritize the tier one suppliers that directly impact a certain level of customer experience, or they're prioritizing um, re risk to revenue, right? In many cases, risk to revenue, and they can identify that segment of suppliers, and then we map that way. So we really kind of allow the client to drive what's important to them. And sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's Hey, you know, it's the Uyghur Act, and we want to get ahead of that and be proactive. And let's choose this particular division. So it can be any of those ways. That's really how they're managing it uh, so far to keep it where it's uh, consumable. Uh, as Chris said, they usually we usually have to have cleanse data or work with clients to cleanse that data. It all starts there, um, and that's what makes it most effective. Um, but those clients who do invest in it. Um, find that they win, right? They protect product, they protect revenue, and ultimately protect reputation. And I think that's really, you know, a big impact and why, you know, many, many companies are making the investment now to not only map, but monitor the, the multi-tier supply chain. Thanks, Julie. I guess a related one, if I can ask, ask you this on, on this one as well, Julie, is that do we have a problem though, that if you're a sort of small tier four supplier way down the supply chain, ultimately supplying many, many different customers, is there a risk that you're going to have to produce this information in, in 10, 20 different ways and it becomes just a sort of a massive burden? Or are there ways to, to make this data really consistent that even if it's displayed by different systems, it could be picked up in a consistent way? Yes. So, so the old way of doing it, the answer to that question would be, yes, it's really painful because the old way were surveys and manual and I'm going to ask my tier ones who are going to try to get tier two to comply to answer a survey. And it becomes unwieldy for anyone in that tier. 
Um, but, but by using artificial intelligence, it's actually, you're not actually asking them because the, the data and the intelligence is revealing and discovering that and producing that information. Now, what tier, what our customers tend to do sometimes is actually reach out. They may skip their tier one and communicate uh, directly with a two or a three. Um, that that example of that would be semi in semiconductors. We've seen that happen in certain commodities at risk. We've seen that happen. Um, but that's what the the technology allows them to do to not be so dependent um, on the, on the manual intervention. Great, thank you. I think we had a question earlier from um, Evanson as well, which was um, around um, the three PL firms. Um, kind of involvement in all this. I, I guess the question's a little bit more around currency fluctuation, but I, I think it sort of just reminds reminds us that it's not just the corporations involved and their manufacturers and so on. There may be three PLs involved in, in the frame as well. So um, perhaps Francesco, perhaps if you don't mind, go back to you. Do, do you. do you use many three PLs, service providers, as well as component and manufacturer suppliers? And, and, and do you try and capture their their um you know, map them in, in your supply chains as well uh, to the extent of the question i can say that um, i do uh, look at currency fluctuation as a an effect that we need to take into consideration from a financial perspective uh, we are companies right so this is a uh, corporation environment is not a bank environment and currencies usually are managed by banks so Unless our financial services are uh, aware of changes that would allow us to, 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 to create competitiveness out of particular moves, uh, we don't have to care about currency. We have to, to of course, account for the FX effect, which is, uh, which is a bit of a pain for all the professionals when it comes to budgets and reviews and, uh, and the effect on productivity and whatever. Uh, but we don't have to account for this right away. So the policy is, uh, we have the monetary policy and the uh, procurement policy, which has more to do with uh, cost optimization. You can optimize the cost, but uh, how to optimize the cash flow, that means uh, more in the scope of uh, financial services, which are linked to the company. Okay, thanks, Francesco. Chris, I mean, in terms of ignoring the sort of currency sort of point of view, I'm just interested in in, in how much you're concerned about the three PLs who may be, you know, even more secondary, tertiary in the supply chain because they're just sort of, you know, moving products between the different tiers of the supply chain. Is that a concern of yours to to make sure they're mapped fully in terms of visibility and so on? Yeah, from a mapping point of view, it would be important. I think when I think about three PLs and, and what we've been experiencing is the capacity in this market has been pretty tight, right? So, so when you think about it from a risk point of view and risk profiling, which is linked to mapping in many ways, um, it's it's really getting availability and understanding the availability of labor linked to moving of product, right? So, and then if you think, well, when you think about through pandemic, it's really about moving, in the case of Europe, it's moving a goods cross country and can drivers move, right? So we. we we all experienced and saw that as we as we reflect on that, and and I think what it points to is that when you think about risk, you have to think about out of the box and all types of risk, no matter what it is. From whether it's labor shortages linked to trucking, um, there's going to be labor inflation that we're all going to have to deal with going forward. 
Um, if I take an environmental view regarding whether it's the German Supply Chain Act and, the, and what's happening across uh, in the climate generally, as water, you know, we, as water raises, then you have to look at where are your sites, where you know, what's the impact to your infrastructure. So there's so many different types of things that are out there today. Um, we just have to think much more broadly than just sort of getting supply from a single dual source point of view. So I think 3PL is just part of that extension. Thank you. So um, we've got five minutes left. Um, so perhaps if we sort of conclude, I, I'd like to go around each of you and ask what, what your sort of you know, overall kind of concluding remarks are in terms of mapping the multi-tier supply chain. And, and I'd be very interested, you know, what are your views? You know, do you see this as a, as a burden or actually much more an opportunity uh, to really give you insight and, and control of your supply chains and, and indeed appeal to consumers? Uh, so, Francesco, uh, perhaps I can ask you, first of all, as uh, sort of... Uh, I think that what Julie was saying before is uh, extremely relevant to this topic. Uh, the difference could be on my maturity of the different suppliers. We have suppliers highly mature, uh, for which we can get all the info out of a click, out of the tools that we currently have available. And we have suppliers whose maturity level is much below... Uh, what could be required to have it completely automatic, but the effort is definitely worth uh, the the result you could get out of it. Thank you, Haley. Perhaps um, over to you. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think um, mapping your supply chain in sort of like your multi-tier supply chain is absolutely vital for um, for consumers going forward, um, for businesses. I do think some businesses see it as a burden um, because it can be quite costly, um, but I do think it's absolutely important to do it. And I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it again, but I said earlier, I do think, you know, the forms that we have now, that are the AI that's available, um, you can actually do it a much, much more quickly and cost effectively um, than you you could if you had to look at trying to do multi-tier without those tools available to you. So I think it's absolutely a, a real must for anyone who wants to uh, meet these uh, the sort of like the expectations of um, customers for the future um, in and around ESG. Okay, perhaps I'll move to Julie um, with, with that nice lead again from Haley about about the ease or not of being able to do this. So, Julie, your, your concluding comments? Yes, absolutely. And, and actually, I think it answers one of the questions in our in our chat, which is, first of all, um, it's important to act and act now, right? There, the disruptions are only going to continue and potentially get worse um, with geopolitical risk, with the environmental risk that we talked about, uh, regulatory, cyber. Um, so acting now is critical. Um, and the answer to the question around speed and accuracy is actually, it's a matter of days and over 90% accuracy in what we're finding as, as we work with customers. Um, so, so get started so that you can actually see around those blind spots, take action and make better, faster decisions. Thank you, Julie. It's great to hear how quickly these, these things can be put in place now. And Chris, finally, uh, your, your, your concluding comments. Yeah, I think, Look, from, from where we come at it, from a competitive advantage point of view, you need to be able to understand your end-to-end -end supply chain um, and having integrity in the actual supply chain to protect your reputation. Um, so, the, so, it's, so there's a reputational piece to this as much as there is a competitive advantage piece to it. You know, in terms of direct advice, there is an investment. Yes, it, it's, not, it's not for free. Um, 
and you have to really think it through from a the, the usual thing around people, process, and technology. Okay, so so don't assume the technology works without actually putting the processes in place uh, and to maintain and sustain it. Um, but it's not going away. Thank you. Great. So um, to conclude, um, before I sort of say, say thanks to all of you, um, we, we've, um, we believe that the, the winner of the mug should be Nanamid. So thank you, Nanamid, for your great questions there. Um, and a mug will be winging its way to you. I think um, someone will be in touch to get your details. Um, the next talk on the 21st of September is about inclusion and diversity in terms of both motivating and retaining supply chain talent, a, a, a massive issue I know in, in many markets now. Um, so to conclude, thank you very much indeed for um, the guests, Francesco Lucetta of Pentair, Heidi Gauntlet of QBL Consulting, Chris Shanahan of Thermo Fisher Scientific, and Julie Gerdeman of Everstream Analytics. Thank you all of you for some great contributions. Thank you.